I have received information from multiple U.S. government officials that the President of the United States is using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 U.S. election. This interference includes, among other things, pressuring a foreign country to investigate one of the president's main domestic political rivals. The president's personal lawyer, Mr. Rudolph Giuliani, is a central figure in this effort. So begins the whistleblower complaint that sparked the impeachment of Donald Trump. When Ambassador Bill Taylor kicked off these impeachment hearings earlier this month, he described this pressure campaign as the outgrowth of a shadow diplomacy an irregular channel of political appointees and outside associates, including Giuliani, who had direct access to the president. One of those appointees, the linchpin of the scheme, was EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland. In his climactic Wednesday testimony, Sondland confessed that he and the so-called Three Amigos had worked with Giuliani to execute Trump's plan. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. But that wasn't all he said. He also took issue with Taylor's characterization of the shakedown itself. This wasn't a quote-unquote irregular channel, he insisted. There was nothing irregular about it. It wasn't just him. It was everybody. The suggestion that we were engaged in some irregular or rogue diplomacy is absolutely false. I have now identified certain State Department emails and messages that provide contemporaneous support for my view. These emails show that the leadership of the State Department, the National Security Council, and the White House were all informed about the Ukraine efforts from May 23, 2019, until the security aid was released on September 11, 2019. Sondland named names. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Vice President Mike Pence, even former National Security Advisor John Bolton, whom we've been led to believe had tried to keep the National Security Council out of the quote-unquote drug deal the others were cooking up in Ukraine. Not only did they know about the drug deal, but the evidence Sondland brought with him suggests that some of them supported it, or at least played along. The vice president nodded like he heard what I said. And this is my email to Secretary Pompeo. Should we block time in Warsaw for a short pull aside for POTUS to meet Zelensky? I would ask Zelensky to look him in the eye and tell him that once Ukraine's new justice folks are in place in mid-September, that Zelensky, he Zelensky, should be able to move forward publicly and with confidence on those issues of importance to POTUS in the U.S. Hopefully that will help break the logjam. The secretary replied, yes. On August 26th, shortly before his visit to Kiev, Ambassador Bolton's office requested Mr. Giuliani's contact information from me. I sent Ambassador Bolton the information directly. Everyone was in the loop. It was no secret. Surprising? Maybe not. 
For all the cloak and dagger drama of whistleblowers and secret meetings, the shakedown of Ukraine played out very publicly starting this past spring. The fact that Pompeo and even Pence were implicated in it has been evident for some time. Mulvaney admitted to the corrupt quid pro quo on camera in the White House briefing room. But is it shocking? Absolutely. To those on the ground in Kiev and to the National Security Council in Washington, it looked like a small number of Trump henchmen had hijacked Ukraine diplomacy from the so-called interagency process that produces the president's and thus the U.S. government's official policy. But from the perspective of the hijackers, they weren't small in number at all. They were part of a whole-of-government effort to carry out a scheme that the president had orchestrated and that many of them knew was wrong. And yet, none of them alerted the public. Not when Giuliani went on television and bragged about interfering in an investigation. Not when Bolton instructed them to inform the lawyers. Not until an intelligence community official, a second-hand witness, blew the whistle and Congress began an impeachment inquiry when everyone realized that their roles, witting or unwitting, in the corruption of U.S. foreign policy and American elections were likely to become public anyhow. And that raises critically important questions. What drug deals will Trump move on to next? What drug deals are already underway? In her testimony Thursday, Bolton's former deputy Fiona Hill explained just how extensive these deals can become under the noses of even senior government officials. It struck me one yesterday when you put up on the screen Ambassador Sondland's emails and who was on these emails. And he said, these are the people who need to know that he was absolutely right because he was being involved in a domestic political errand. And we were being involved in national security foreign policy. And those two things had just diverged. So he was correct. And I had not put my finger on that at the moment. But I was irritated with him and angry with him that he wasn't fully coordinating. And I did say to him, Ambassador Sondland, Gordon, I think this is all going to blow up. And here we are. And yet at the same time, she carefully avoided commenting on whether any other calls Trump held with world leaders contained evidence of similar corruption. Dr. Hill, you, during your time, two and a half years in the White House, listened to a number of presidential phone calls. Is that right? That's right. Can you estimate approximately how many? I can't, actually. I mean, sometimes there would be um, multiple calls during a week. I was there for more than two years, so it's a fair number. Have you ever heard a call like this one that you read? I don't want to comment on this uh, call um, because this is, in my view, executive privilege. Senior Trump officials have issued statements disputing Sondland's testimony, but all of them have refused to testify under oath themselves, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi does not want to chase them down. We cannot be... Uh, at the mercy of the courts. The courts are very important in all of this. Those cases will continue. But I have never said we cannot proceed without the courts because that's a technique on the part of the administration. Just keep ratcheting up to a higher court. The impeachment inquiry will soon move into its closing phase, and Republicans have given almost no indication that they will take any steps to protect the country from this corruption. To the contrary, they mostly seem upset that Trump got caught this time, and hope he can pick up where he left off. And we remain in the dark about a great deal. My guest today is Lawfare Managing Editor Quinta Jurassic. We'll discuss the dots left unconnected by the impeachment inquiry so far and what we risk by not connecting them. I'm Brian Boitler, and this is Rubicon. Quinta Jurassic, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. 
so I guess let's just start with your global assessment of the impeachment process as it stands and specifically what you thought when you read Gordon Sondland's opening statement and then you watched his hearing and all of the revelations that uh, came out of that. Sure. Well, I remember seeing someone wrote uh, in the morning before Sondland's hearing that it wasn't going to be, you know, very notable unless he went full Sammy the Bull, meaning (laughs) Sammy the Bull Gravano, the famous mafia figure who flipped, uh, turned on the mafia, gave testimony against them. And I think it's fair to say that he went full Sammy the Bull. (laughs) Um, He really turned on a dime from what he'd said during his testimony, which... There are plenty of questions about that, but he was incredibly damning on what he said about the extent to which everyone was in the loop, I think was the exact phrase. And that really just knocks down defense after defense after defense that the Republicans had been road testing. So you wrote a piece for The Atlantic earlier this month about how it's folly to assume career government officials will save us from the threat that Trump and his supporters pose to democracy. And and the piece itself is about first about Robert Mueller and later about the diplomats uh, who testified at the first impeachment hearings. I wonder how Fiona Hill's testimony that that ended sort of just before we recorded this fits into your view of that. So my argument in the piece was that those first two civil servants who testified instantly kind of became memeified mm-hmm. <laughs> online. Uh, George Kent had the bow tie. Bill Taylor had this great Walter Cronkite voice. And they sort of came forward as these sort of voices of almost authority from a different time of, you know, America and apple pie. And that that's really appealing right now in a sort of the bleak period in, in which we're living. And the danger is that those civil servants are not there to be heroes. They're there to do their jobs, which actually Taylor and Kent kept saying over and over again. You know, I'm I'm nonpartisan. I'm telling you what I know. I've been called to testify, and I felt it was my duty. I don't want to be here. With Fiona Hill, she's a little bit differently situated than Kent in that she's technically was a political appointee in this administration. But I think she does speak to that kind of ethos of public service in the in the way that she was testifying. And in the same way as you saw with Taylor and Kent, there were a lot of people right now saying, you know, Fiona Hill forever, Fiona Hill fan club, you know. I even saw Fiona Hill 2020 and it's like, no. There, yeah, right. She unfortunately allowed. cannot run for president. <laughs> um, and there's a similar dynamic there as the one that I, I saw with Kent and Taylor, too, that Fiona Hill's job was to work in the National Security Council on Europe and Russia matters. And her job now, as she sees it, is clearly to come before Congress and tell Congress what she knows. She kept emphasizing again and again, I'm a fact witness. This is my purpose. But she's not going to ride in and save the day. And what I mean by that specifically is that she's actually she's been an incredible witness um, just in terms of, I mean, her own performance. She's given these amazing speeches. But however many speeches she gives, they're not going to break through to the Jim Jordans of the world. And so does it help the Democrats in the impeachment effort that they have this amazing witness in Fiona Hill that she tells a clear story that matches up with everyone else's story? Absolutely. But it's not going to solve the problem that, 
you know, at the end of the day, Jim Jordan and Devin Nunes are still going to be out there yelling about the Steele dossier. So I've, I've been struck a few times as the impeachment process has unfolded by sort of the flip side of this. Like they don't have a magic ability to convince Jim Jordan and they might not even feel like uh, it, it's their role to involve themselves beyond whatever their legal obligation to Congress is by how this process has revealed how how these conspiracies can like fester and develop even as people of genuine integrity uh, witness them unfolding and get folded into them. And there's still kind of no way for them to do what we might imagine the heroic thing is, right? Like I think of Bill Taylor first and foremost in this because he knew something was up and he could have resigned and he could have blown the whistle. Um, but he worked through proper channels to try to stop the conspiracy from taking effect. And he tried to help the people of Ukraine. And yet from his perspective, he prevailed, right? Like the, as the Republicans are so fond of noting, the quid pro quo was never fully consummated. And having succeeded, why would he then speak up, lose his post, throw the Ukrainians that he clearly cares about to the very wolves he just saved them from? And so if it hadn't been for the impeachment process, I don't think he would have ever said anything about this. And then separately, there's this really dramatic testimony from Fiona Hill that we clipped and played in the intro. A big part of what I think she was talking about there was perception, right? From her perspective, there was this sort of wrong but limited meddling happening in Ukraine policy. But then from Gordon Sondland's perspective, he was just carrying out policy, what he believed the U.S. policy to be. And so the whole notion of conspiracy is kind of the wrong language for either of them to describe what's happening. And so there's nothing really for either of them to do to alert the public, right? And so it's not just that the bureaucrats can't save us because they can't convince the broader public or they can't stop Republicans uh, from acting in their own political interests, but they can't save us because sometimes they just can't see that there's anything to save us from. They have equities to protect or they're just kind of in the fog of it and blind to all the dimensions of what they're living through. Does that make sense? I think the the best example of someone who's stuck in the fog seems to have been Kurt Volker. And in saying this, I'm drawing not only on Volker's own testimony, which seemed to me like he may have been trying to intentionally obfuscate his understanding of what was going on, but... Uh, the testimony of others, including Kent and Taylor, who kind of indicated that they felt Volker may have been drawn a little too far in, that they didn't question his motives, but that he was thinking a little too much sort of tactically, step by step, how do I mitigate harm? And that lost the sense of when you take a step back, this is really something wrong that's happening. And in that way, Volcker is actually a really good example, I think, of the sort of the corruption <laughs> of Donald Trump, right? The the way that people kind of get sucked in and and lose their perspective. Regarding the other people involved here, you know, Taylor, Kent Hill, would we be hearing from any of these people if the whistleblower complaint hadn't been filed? I don't know. And I agree. It's a really disturbing thought, not only because, you know, how many other instances have there been where a whistleblower complaint wasn't filed and we didn't find out what happened, but also because I, I think it goes back to the same issue with Volcker. You know, this is a case study of how difficult it is 
to be a moral person and serve your country, which all these people really do seem to have felt they were doing under incredibly difficult circumstances in a government run by someone who's actively trying to undermine you. There are all these people trying to do the right thing. And some of them have even come out of it looking good. And at the end of the day, there's just this lurking question of, did they let themselves get drawn in too far? I, I mean, we, we can zoom back to other controversies, other officials who we were told were the adults in the room who were trying to keep Trump on the rails, keep policy in order. And in, in many cases, it seems like what that ended up forcing them to do was try to cram a corrupt endeavor into a facially legitimate government action, try to find a legal pretext for it, try to find a policy rationale for it that could be explained to Congress, to the public, to themselves probably as, you know, maybe not ideal policy and maybe not wise, but acceptable within, you know, with, you know, on the rails in some sense. And then they leave and we never get the full story because, you know, either they succeeded in cramming Trump's corrupt objectives into a facially non-corrupt box and then they bail uh, or they try to stop it and they resign and they go back to their private lives. And in almost all these cases, with like the one big exception being Jim Comey, we just never hear from Jim Mattis, former defense secretary, from uh, Dina Powell, former deputy national security advisor, H.R. McMaster is another good example of this. And it makes me really worry about what happens on the flip side of this impeachment process is that we're going to go back to that and Trump is going to be at the apex of his corruption because he's going to have survived the one confrontation over it that Democrats were willing to bring. I guess the question is, should Democrats wrap this impeachment up without making some kind of maybe time limited but serious effort to compel testimony from the principals, right? The bureaucrats won't save us, but maybe the political appointees have the information that's needed, if not to remove Donald Trump, then to strip away the legitimacy from the things he might do as he abuses his power going forward. So I, I think that the clear implication of Hill's testimony is that John Bolton knew a lot more about what was happening in real time than she did, and he tried to shield the National Security Council from it. And Democrats haven't even issued him a subpoena. Is that a mistake? Bolton, I don't understand what game Bolton is playing, to be completely honest with you. I mean, it really seems like he can't decide who he wants to go to the prom with. He <laughs> he kind of, you know, he says he doesn't want to testify and then he dangles, you know, well, I have all this information that I could give you, you know, sort of one step forward, one step back. So I'm going to be completely honest. I have no idea what game he is playing. I agree with you that... Based on Hill's testimony, it seems like he has a lot to say. Based on the testimony of Tim Morrison, Hill's successor, it seems like he has a lot to say because Morrison was an incredibly frustrating witness, uh, not even talking about the public hearing, but just about his deposition. If you read the transcript, he basically says John Bolton, you know, went into this room and had this conversation and then he came out and he's asked well, what did he say to you? And he basically says, I don't want to talk about that over and over again. And so we get these kind of hints that John Bolton must have known more and must have 
done more without that ever actually being fleshed out. So in a way, if you you can kind of read Morrison's deposition as queuing up Bolton, the question being whether Bolton is ever going to appear. A federal judge is going to rule on Monday, I think, as to whether former White House counsel Don McGahn has to testify. And John Bolton's whole thing is I'll testify if a court says I have to testify, which is a broad enough standard that if a court ruling in a similar proceeding says that people who were in John Bolton's basic role, you know, direct advisor to the president, very sensitive matters in an impeachment hearing has to testify that he, if he wants to, could use that as a as a basis for deciding, OK, like a court has said it's appropriate for me to testify and so I will. And, you know, Democrats can roll the dice and see what happens next week. But sooner or later, sooner than later, they're going to move this over to the next phase and then and then and then the final phase. What if, you know, if, if Bolton just wants to look like he's reluctant, it's hard to make him look reluctant unless you give him the subpoena or hold him in contempt. And is it an error not to even venture in that direction? I don't think the House necessarily needs Bolton's testimony to move forward because what they already have is so damning mm-hmm. that I don't doubt it would help flesh it out, uh, specifically the the conversations that he had that Morrison was sort of unwilling to give more details on. But if you're trying to build the case that the president conditioned an official act on the Ukrainians investigating Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, and supposed 2016 election interference. So that is the definition of bribery, right? The conditioning of an official act on a thing of value. You don't need John Bolton to make that case. They've actually, they've had everything they needed to make that case since the White House released the call transcript. And for all they've been trying to sort of throw smoke up, The hearings that have come since then have basically been a process of giving more color and detail to the story, giving information that sort of destroys potential exonerating explanations like the Ukrainians didn't know or Trump didn't know what was going on. But it's not like Bolton is sort of the keystone that's going to make it all slot into place. I get that. And... I also agree that in a in a sort of like if this were a court of law, you could take it to the jury, right? But here's why I think this matters and why why I raised it. In a scenario where the proceedings come to a close without Democrats having connected these final dots or sought a fuller picture from people who have left government but know a lot, is that Republicans have given no indication that they're ready to remove him. Trump survives the process and all the people who Sondland said were a part of the drug deal – are still cabinet secretaries, right? They're still in power. To take one example, a couple days ago, we learned that the FBI wants to interview the whistleblower. And maybe that's all on the up and up, and they want to investigate the crimes that the whistleblower stipulated or implied to in his complaint. But like maybe Bill Barr has ginned up an investigation designed to ensnare the whistleblower or his informants in some kind of, you know, for mishandling classified information or whatever. The career folks are probably not going to tell us that, right? Like that's essentially what what we've been discussing about, you know, we would have to get lucky and there'd be yet another whistleblower to find out that further abuses were happening at the same high level with the same cast of characters. 
the same report about the FBI wanting to interview the whistleblower notes that nobody at FBI wanted to touch the Ukraine matter because everyone at FBI is apparently scared about all the retribution that the agents who investigated the Russia matter faced. That might all happen anyway. You know, the impeachment might end with or without Bolton's testimony, and then Trump and Bill Barr will cook up another drug deal. But if you leave important questions about the the full story unresolved, doesn't it just make it easier for them to try to get another conspiracy to work out better? If they do, and you haven't really proved the case, whatever they cook up will be lent credence. If John Bolton comes forward and says, yeah, here's what Trump told me. He definitely told me this was all about his election uh, and that he was trying to get the Ukrainians involved. That will color everything that happens afterwards. And if Trump tries to engage in more shady crap to subvert the 2020 election, there will be a, a, a real factual record there to say we shouldn't trust any of this. None of this is on the on the level. And that has real value, I think. First on the the FBI reaching out to the whistleblower I wish I could say absolutely not. There's no way this was anything other than on the level. I am not going to stake my credibility on that just because such are the times on which we Mm -hmm. live. That said, there are plenty of reasons why I can imagine the Bureau would want to talk to the whistleblower that are totally above board. Among them, uh, counterintelligence, frankly, Mm -hmm. um, which is exactly the issue that was never really resolved in the Mueller report of what the Bureau's conclusions were about Russia's involvement with the Trump campaign and what the president were on a counterintelligence level, not a criminal level. And you could certainly see how they might want to reach out to the whistleblower about that, as well as, of course, there is the the criminal issue. So that's one thing, though I agree with you that with Bill Barr at the helm. I wish I could say I was 100% confident. Um, The other thing is that I think there's an important distinction between whether Bolton specifically should testify and whether, say, Mike Pompeo or Mike Pence should testify, right? Because Bolton is a former official. He does have a book coming out, theoretically. So, you know, maybe even if he doesn't testify, we'll I'll have to pay 25 bucks to read what he has to say on the matter. But, you know, uh, American Oversight has a FOIA request that is set to produce a tranche of documents from the State Department on the Ukraine issue uh, Friday afternoon. So we'll see what comes out of there. And Gordon Sondland certainly has indicated that the State Department is holding on to a lot of paper that he would like to see and presumably is not good for the president. If, say, that material is released and it looks really bad for Mike Pence, I think that is a very different question than should John Bolton testify for the Democrats? Because that gets to do we hold Mike Pompeo accountable or not? Do we hold Mike Pence accountable or not? And as you say, that does go directly to the complicity of serving government officials. And so... Even if you're a member of Congress who really just wants to go full speed ahead and pass this to the Senate, I do think that should raise serious questions about whether they should slow down and dig into that more. I use John Bolton as an example because he seems gettable. He seems to have a lot that he wants to get off his chest, whether for money or not. The the, the broader point, I think, is if you're not going to remove Trump from office, exposing 
the depth of the rot and how involved Pompeo was and all the people who are going to be there, Bill Barr was, Mick Mulvaney was, is key to delegitimizing them as public figures going forward who will have a lot of power to try to consummate further drug deals, right? And there, there's a full year before the next election and getting Bill Barr or Mike Pompeo before Congress even if they just refuse to answer questions, would be a very powerful thing, right? Like, exactly. yeah, the, the Republicans are, are, are maybe going to circle ranks around you and you're going to all survive this and you're all going to have your jobs and we're going to have to live with that. But everyone's going to remember that you got caught in this scheme to deny us a free and fair election. And then when you were asked to testify about it, you resisted. And when your resistance failed, you pled the fifth, refused to answer questions Whatever the case is, and you know, I, we could we could go into hypothetical examples of how these guys could abuse their power. But uh, last night, the night before, uh, Lindsey Graham was on Sean Hannity's show, and he was talking about this DOJ Inspector General's report that hasn't been fully completed. You know, he he knows when it's going to be released, and it's already figuring heavily in pro-Trump propaganda. And there is every reason to suspect that this isn't on the level and the way that report gets treated when it comes out. Like, obviously, we should all read what it says and decide whether there's anything to it or whether it's just too suspect to have any merit. But if it comes out in a world where Bill Barr has been pursued and refused to testify or pled the fifth or sold out Mike Pompeo or whatever, then it colors how the public interprets the next thing. And I th- that's what I worry is being lost by the rush to get this public phase of the impeachment process over is that we'll just get swept into the next chapter of all this and the full depth of very senior people's complicity in all this will not have been exposed. One of the big questions here is whether or not the Democrats will call more witnesses, you know, what their plans are. And I don't actually think we know at this point. I saw uh, Nicholas Fandos, who reports on Congress for The New York Times, wrote earlier today that that was the million dollar question and that he didn't know and it wasn't clear if Democrats knew. So it's totally possible. You can see a world in which they just try to go full speed ahead and kick it to the Senate. You can see a world in which they decide they want to call more witnesses, right? Uh, Mark Sandy, who works at the Office of Management and Budget, testified in a closed deposition the other weekend. We haven't seen that transcript. He hasn't been called to testify. You can imagine more hearings being announced post-Thanksgiving. It does feel a little bit like we're in limbo right now. Like mm-hmm. We just don't know what they have planned. I mean, they might not know what they have planned. It seems like they don't. And it would be a good problem to have for this podcast to be rendered obsolete pretty quickly by the announcement that John Bolton had agreed to testify. Or they had five more witnesses scheduled for after Thanksgiving. I would take the L on that one. And, uh, you know, we would just archive this or something like that. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for the listeners? What's really been noteworthy to me over the last two weeks as we've seen these hearings take place is I know Devin Nunes has been saying, you know, no one is watching these hearings. The ratings are down, all that kind of stuff. But the degree of public engagement, um, the degree of media coverage, the degree of engagement on social media, granted, you know, I'm like every other journalist in D.C., I'm on Twitter and so I'm speaking about Twitter. But When all there was was the transcripts, there was so much less coverage and so much less public engagement 
with the material, which is totally reasonable because there's like 3,500 pages of transcripts, which is like four times the length of War and Peace. No one has the time to read that. <laughs> I haven't read them all. But when you put witnesses in front of people and actually let them talk, even if they're not saying anything new, and some of them did say things that were new, it can potentially be really powerful. And for all the skepticism among journalists, I think the sort of conventional wisdom that who has time to watch the hearings, no one's going to tune in. It actually does seem like there's a way in which, you know, good old fashioned television can permeate the public consciousness in a way that thousands of pages of transcripts can't. And so it's entirely possible that I'm wish casting a little bit here. But go I mean, going back to the Bill Taylor as Cronkite comparison, right? There there is a real echo of the Watergate hearings in what we're seeing now on, on many levels, obviously. But part of that is that it is an event that people sit down and watch. And if they can't watch it, they will see clips and news coverage, you know, in the evening and the next morning. I'm not saying that that's going to fix all the problems because, of course, a lot of people are watching clips on Fox News and they're going to get a very different version of the hearings than people who watch CNN or MSNBC or PBS get. But in a weird way, I find it kind of hardening um, the way that this still has the power to grab people's attention, at least to some extent, and become a media event. I may be responding to this partially because I spent two years fighting off people who were saying, Russia is really boring. No one cares about Russia. And so now it's a relief to have people making memes about George Kent's bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually been kind of strangely hardening to see. I agree with that. And I, I think it's a hopeful note to end on. Um, and so we'll leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. But as Quinta mentioned during our conversation, there are a few things we can expect between now and Thanksgiving. The State Department has been ordered to produce documents stemming from the Ukraine scandal on Friday. And a federal judge will decide Monday whether former White House counsel Don McGahn has to comply with his subpoena and testify to impeachment investigators before they finish their inquiry. A lot might hinge on that decision, so pay close attention. This show is produced by Crooked Media. It's written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. Stephen Hoffman is our producer and editor. And special thanks to Bill Lance for his help on today's episode. 